Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Reverend Jennifer Nordstrom. I'm serving here as the senior minister at the First Unitarian Society of Milwaukee, a place where meaning, spiritual growth, and social justice all come together. And I wanted to open our time with an, a reading by Worsan Shire that the title of this event is based on. Worsan Shire is a British Somali poet, and this reading is called Home. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbors running faster than you, the boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. No one would leave home unless home chased you. Fire under feet, hot blood in your belly. You have to understand no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. Who would choose to spend days and nights in the stomach of a truck unless the miles traveled meant something more than the journey? I want to go home, but home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of the gun, and no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore, unless home tells you to leave what you could not behind, even if it was human. No one leaves home until home is a damp voice in your ear saying, leave, run now. I don't know what I've become. Thank you all for being here to talk about immigration and refugees. I'm Sure that like you, like me, you have been gutted by the stories of children who've been separated from their parents at the border, of families who've been separated by deportation, and of people who have been deported and have been killed when they've arrived home. My faith teaches me that every human life has inherent worth and dignity, and that inherent worth does not change at the edge of a border. I know that there are people from all different faiths here today, and we have the stories of Moses and of Jesus and of Muhammad and of Mary, all of whom were refugees. I am grateful that you're here to explore how to make the United States a safer place to call home, how to change policies, how to change realities for people who need home. Thank you all for your work. I know that many of you have been working for a long time on these issues, and I am incredibly grateful for all that you do. And thank, thank you all for being here to explore what else we might be able to do together. I'm grateful. Welcome again. I'm Janet Nortrum, part of the Interfaith Committee. And I have the pleasure of working on this committee and pulling this day together. And 
have brought to you Barbara Miner. She is an award-winning reporter, writer, and editor, and she's become a photographer, an outstanding photographer the last few years also. Her work has appeared and published in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Milwaukee Magazine, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. She is so involved. She's still living in River West. She's got a degree in journalism, in English literature, an associate degree in photography. She's getting better in that photography all the time. And she's a happy grandparent and going to look forward to another grandchild coming soon. So anyway, the other thing someone asked me is there possibly, if the restrooms are full down here, you can take the elevator and go up, or you can go down, take the elevator down. There's restrooms on both floors. So welcome again and enjoy Barbara Miner. So I wanted to talk a little bit about primarily about how I came to write the story. And the story that I'm referring to, it's called The New Land, and it was published in Milwaukee Magazine about a year ago. And it's about the 21st century immigrants to Milwaukee. And like many stories, I stumbled across it. In the fall of 2017, I was talking to a friend who teaches an MPS. Uh, because my husband was he, what he calls himself a lifer at MPS, I know a lot of people in the Milwaukee public schools. And she was getting ready for the new school year, and she said, you know, I had a lot of Rohingya by the end of this year last year. I imagine I'll have quite a few this year. And I, I kind of looked at her, and I'm going, Rohingya, Rohingya. Yes, I mean, it, it rang a bell, but I was embarrassed to admit that I knew very little about the Rohingya. Uh, they're from Burma, which is now known as Myanmar, so again, that sometimes, I think, adds to the complexity. And then in September, Rohingya was everywhere in the news because the Rohingya people were being deeply persecuted in what one UN official called near-genocidal proportions. And I realized that there was something here because part of what I learned about because I'm always amazed at what I don't know about Milwaukee. I was born here, I grew up here, I left, I came back, I'll probably die here, but every day I'm amazed by what I don't know about this city, and I had no clue about the Rohingya population. And it turns out that Milwaukee probably has more Rohingya people living here than any other city in the United States. And in fact, together, Milwaukee and Chicago truly are the epicenter of Rohingya resettlement in the United States. So we do not have to travel far afield to other worlds to really be part of today's world. That's one of the lessons I learned about Milwaukee in doing this story. I lived for many years in New York, which, which I love. And I always say, you don't have to travel the world, just go to New York because the world is in New York. But increasingly, the world is in Milwaukee. Now, I had known about the Latinos, the Sikhs, the Hmong, the Asians, but not the Rohingya. And as I started looking, it almost became impossible not to see the influence of the other new populations, especially some of the more recent groups, such as the Somalis, Eritreans, Burmese, Russians, Saudis. I mean, the list does go on and on. But before I get into more about the 21st century, I want to go way back to the 1800s. And there's a reason. 
as I get older, I think with every gray hair, I appreciate history more than I used to. When I was young, it was like, history, that's the past. You know, we're going to build the future. And now I go, history, oh my God, that's so important. Because nothing that happens today, absolutely nothing, has not been shaped before by history. So if your Wisconsin history is pretty sketchy like, like mine, uh, there's a few very important names and events, and lots of blanks. I mean, there's Jacques Marquette, the Jesuit priest, whom we remember in part because there's a very famous university named after him here. And then there's the various Europeans that streamed in Wisconsin in the 18th, I mean, the 19th and early 20th century. The Germans, the Irish, the Polish, the Italians, it goes on and on, and we all know. In fact, most of us are probably here because of those European immigrations. Most of us also probably recognize the names of the city's founding fathers, Solomon Juno, Byron Kilborn, George Walker, and I learned of them as the, quote, great statesman of Milwaukee. But as I've also come to learn, as much as anything, they were basically land speculators. And the early history of Milwaukee is essentially a story of who gets to control the land, which of course raises the question, Whose land was it? Now, in Wisconsin, in fourth grade, you're supposed to learn about the native history. But it's pretty, pretty slim. Because I never knew, for example, three very important developments that are rarely discussed, but that shaped Milwaukee's early years and European settlement. Now, the first was in 1832 with the defeat of the Sauk leader, Black Hawk. This signaled the end of armed native resistance in Wisconsin. A year later was the Treaty of Chicago, in which the Potawatomi signed over lands west of Lake Michigan to the US federal government. It was only then, after the defeat of Black Hawk, after the Treaty of Chicago, it was only then that southern Wisconsin was truly opened for white settlers. And once, and part of that is because until the federal government owned the land officially, even though they'd oftentimes taken it before then, they couldn't legally sell it to the settlers. But once the white came, there wasn't as much room for the native populations. So then in 1838, we in Wisconsin had our own forced removal of native people. I mean, I, I've been taught about the Trail of Tears, and no one ever talked about the forced removal of the Potawatomi. Many were taken west of Mississippi. Others, to evade that forced removal, moved to the forests of what is now known as northern Wisconsin. So after these three developments, white migration to Wisconsin skyrocketed. So between 1840 and 1850, Wisconsin's non-native population grew from about 31,000 to 305,000. And in 1848, Wisconsin was admitted as the 30th state in the Union. And I mention that because until we really come to terms with the past, we can't put these present and future developments in their appropriate perspective. Because we oftentimes think about, oh yeah, the immigration, you know, it's just this sort of, these hardy settlers, and but it was, it was, what they 
it was complicated and controversial back then, even though we don't realize that now. We so oftentimes look at the past in these rose-colored glasses. So the second seminal event that shaped Milwaukee, and in fact, this is the central event in Milwaukee's demographics, but it's never talked about as an immigration story, and that is the Great Migration. So the Great Migration of Southern Blacks to the Industrial North is now recognized as one of the key developments of 20th century America, and one of the most important migrations in all of US history. Milwaukee's Great Migration was several decades behind that of major cities such as Chicago, Detroit, but it no less shaped the city. In 18, 19, excuse me, 1930, blacks were less than 2% of the city's population, climbing to about 15% in 1970 and today about 40%. Now when you step back, one key difference between the 21st century immigration, not the migration, but the immigration, and the 19th and 20th century immigration. Immigrants of the previous centuries, the 19th and early 20th, were principally white European Christians. Within that, there were many varieties, and it's not to say there wasn't discrimination, because my background is Irish, German, English. Like a lot of people, I'm what I call a Northern European mutt. Um, but within that, the Irish culture dominated it's Milwaukee, what can I say? Um, so, but my mother would tell me stories of signs in the window that said, no Irish need apply. So it's not to say there wasn't discrimination and conflict. But over time, and this is a whole nother fascinating story, over time the Irish were able to become white. Today's immigrants, however, primarily come from countries considered non-white and often non-Christian. And that contradiction came to the fore after the 2016 presidential elections, just as I was working on this story. Immigration was on everyone's minds, and we had a president who issued any number of anti-immigrant decrees, from the, the so-called Muslim travel ban to the ongoing controversy over building a wall at the US-Mexican border. So one of the questions I faced, in addition to who are the immigrant communities coming to Milwaukee is how are they being affected by the policies coming out of Washington? And that remains an open question, and there's no single answer. But as far as Milwaukee, I, I am hopeful because to this point, city and county politicians have not succumbed to virulent anti-immigrant hysteria, and that is extremely important. So I don't have time to go into all of the article. Oh, I have the cover here somewhere if you ever want to go to Milwaukee Magazine. It should be on their website. It's about 4,000 words, so it's a long one, but you can pick and choose what you read. But I wanted to talk briefly about some of the people I interviewed and some key points that I learned. Um, and I do apologize in advance for the many people and nationalities that I just don't have time to get into. So sort of a quick summary. In recent decades, immigration has been dominated primarily by the Latinos, most of whom who are legal, although sometimes the image is that they're undocumented. And the Hmong are another very strong immigrant group. And this again goes to history because they are here because we were in their country 
during the Vietnam War. And in fact, Wisconsin has the third largest population of Hmong in the United States, and Milwaukee has become the center of that Hmong uh, settlement. There's also a significant number of Asians, especially from the Indian subcontinent, Indians and Pakistanis. But what I want to do to just give you a flavor of the immigrant, the new immigrants, as I call them. I know a lot of people in MPS, as I said, my husband was a long time and still is a, is his heart and soul is with the public schools of Milwaukee. And one of the things that was very interesting in doing the story with a lot of the social service agencies, with a lot of the refugee communities, is that MPS is truly on the front lines of current immigration. And one is providing services. It's also got a number of different bilingual services. Um, but I just wanted to mention a few numbers that tell the story. In MPS, and this was a year ago, different students in MPS spoke more than 54 languages and came from more than 70 countries. As a matter of policy, the district routinely translates documents into six languages, Spanish, which of course I wasn't too surprised, Arabic, Hmong, Somali, Burmese, and Karen. And South Division, which is the high school which has what they call a, a new arrivals program, they have about 200 students in that new arrivals program. And this is separate from the bilingual Spanish program. They have about 200 students in that program speaking more than 15 languages. And one of the most interesting interviews I had in working on the article is when I went down to South and spoke with a group of about eight, 10 students in this new arrivals program. And you know, I've been trying to learn Spanish. It's a lifelong goal. And I'm talking to these young students who, on one level, I could imagine a teacher thinking, oh my gosh, they're English. You know, I got to get them to pass these tests. But I was speaking to one young woman, for example. She spoke six languages. She spoke Arabic, French, Spanish, um, she was learning, I think, French. I mean, she just went on and on. And part of it is because a lot of the younger immigrants, before they came to the United States, they were in refugee settlement camps. And they would be with different people from different countries and would learn to translate for each other or just, you know, like kids. You pick up the language of whomever you're playing with. So one of the hidden strengths of the Milwaukee immigrant population is they are incredibly multilingual, multicultural, with a true global perspective. All the things that if you're a white parent in the Milwaukee area, you want for your kid. They already have it. So who is the people who are deficient, quote unquote, and who aren't in that scenario? So one of the, course, one of the questions, as I said, is how will Milwaukee react to the changes? Um, and before I get into that, I want to talk a little bit about some of the people I interviewed, because I met some fascinating people. One of them, for example, and again, my pronunciation is horrible. And one of the things I learned is well, I can just kind of mumble the word and say this guy's name is murdered. Or I can say it and murder it, but at least I tried to pronounce it. And it, for example, when I went to talk to um, um, Shakut Ali at the uh, Rohingya Society, we spent about five minutes, I said, teach me how to say Rohingya. A and I th he did, but whether it's still in my brain or whether I'm sort of, sort of morphing it with my Spanish, 
I don't know, but I'm trying to say it correctly. But I did speak with Ziabar Mohammed from Rohingya. And again, I spoke with him because of a teacher I knew at a Southside school, not a bilingual school, just one of your many Southside schools, who had about eight Rohingyans in her class. And she had a very good relationship with her students, and she talked to several of them and asked them to ask their parents if they would be willing to be interviewed. Because it's not like you can just walk up to someone on the street and say, excuse me, are you Rohingya and can I interview you? So figuring out how to interview people and how to get access was a very big part of the story. So anyhow, she, he, the student says yes. I get the, uh, the father's, actually we did it all, not through WhatsApp, which is a very popular sort of text messaging, very popular um, outside of the United States, although also owned by Facebook. But anyway, I went down to about 11th and Mitchell to Muhammad's home. And it's a 1908 wood frame home. And I'm thinking to myself, 60 years ago, I bet you a Polish family lived here. Because at that time, Mitchell was the heart of the Polish community. So again, that's one of the interesting ways in which the story is evolving. It's not a new story. Interestingly, the, um, the head of the Rohingya American Society, Shakut Ali, their offices are not too far from Leon's, another classic Milwaukee Southside landmark. And as I said, he, he mentioned, and I think he knows as well as anyone, that there are more Rohingya in Milwaukee than any other city. I also spoke to a fascinating woman, Abu Abdi from Somaliland. And when the minister read her poem at the beginning, it really reminded me of Abu Abdi because she told her story. She was just a young girl. And she was from Somaliland, which she taught me. She was so patient in teaching me things that I was so clueless. I thought, Somalia, Somalia. No, Somalia is very complicated. And she is from a northern area called Somaliland, which considers itself independent of Somalia, but is now just autonomous. Back in the Civil War, because they were fighting for their independence, their family, in the middle of the night, a small family of several children and the mother, along with six other families, got up in the middle of the night, took what they could carry, carried the young children who couldn't walk, walked at night to avoid the soldiers. 50 miles later, I didn't even have the courage to ask how many days. 50 miles later, they made it to the border and then into a resettlement camp. And now she's very, and I, I actually got to know Abu Abdi from MPS because she does oftentimes some teacher professional development for MPS, trying to sensitize teachers to what it means to have sort of Muslim children in the school and, and why they might not eat the lunch that day or why there might be certain ways they behave and interact. And she was the one who taught me that Somali, Somalia is very complicated and that there are actually two different waves of Somali immigration to Milwaukee. The first uh, was actually not quite as large, and those were the people from the north, Somaliland, or from northern Somalia. The more recent wave were, are what are called the Somali Bantu. And I had seen, especially at Fondi's Food Market, women that I now know were Somali Bantu because they are from the southern part of Somalia and they're ethnically, culturally, racially, and linguistically 
um, come from sub-Saharan black Africa. So they're, they're very different. And actually within Somalia, the Somali Bantu have often been discriminated against. The one thing they do have in common is they both are Muslim. Interestingly, some of the demographic housing patterns of the past carry on in today's new populations because the Somalis from northern Somalia tend to live on the south side. The Somali Bantu tend to live on the north side. It, it's, it's fascinating and I haven't completely figured out, but then again, I've never figured out Milwaukee's segregation patterns either. It's, it's an extremely complicated topic. Another person I found extremely helpful was Othman Atta of the Islamic Society. And he actually uh, came here in the 60s, graduated from Rufus King, went to Marquette Law School. And he considers himself somewhat of a, a liaison between the Muslim and non-Muslim communities in Milwaukee. And it was interesting because you know the Latino immigrants tend to be Catholic, the Asians, Hindu, or Sikh generally. But many of the new immigrants, especially the refugees, tend to be Muslim. So they're united by their religion, but not by language. And I, you know, I had no clue. And, and, and Atta was talking about how you know, the newer populations, had, it had become more complicated for the Islamic society. You know, oftentimes in the past, Arab was the common language. And he said, you know, at the Islamic center right now, the main sermon is required to be in English because that is the only common language of the different Muslim immigrants. I don't know what it means, but I found it fascinating. Then another person I spoke to, and this gets into the question of how does the larger um, national dialogue, I, I don't even know what terms to use, I don't want to alienate people, I have to watch my temper, my anger, but how does the, the larger national dialogue affect Milwaukee. And most of, the, most of the people I spoke to involved from the immigrant communities felt very positive about Milwaukee. Their main fear was that, you know, you have these crazies out there and they hear this rhetoric and they hear this sort of whipping up of hysteria and who knows what they'll do. Now in 2012, unfortunately, this did indeed happen in Milwaukee with the Sikh massacre. Six people were killed by a right-winger who, who took to heart all the anti-immigrant, anti-Sikh um, garbage out there. So I spoke with Pardeep Kaleka, who I, perhaps he's spoken here. He's, he's become very, um, very involved in Milwaukee. His father died in the massacre. And after that, he had been a policeman, teacher, but right now he's a therapist. And, he literally has dedicated his life to healing and promoting peace. So I'd like to end my remarks, and then we'll have time for a QA and perhaps some other things. I'd like to end my remarks with my, my discussion with Pardeep, because I think it bears on the question of what now. So about six years ago, shortly after the massacre, Kalika had a two tattoo engraved on his palm. And I, I heard about it because you wouldn't ordinarily see the palm. And on his palm, he has the numbers 8-5-12. That's the date of the massacre. But by the time I saw it a year ago, it was, it was getting kind of faint and wearing off. And Kalik, he, he, he laughed and he said, you know, that's fine. He said, I see it as a metaphor in that we need to embrace 
are impermanence. Even this tattoo, which is supposed to be permanent, is not. And then he went on to note that this too could be, in fact, should be a metaphor for Milwaukee. Change, he said, is the only constant in life. And so the question becomes, will we embrace that change here in Milwaukee? I'm hopeful the answer will be yes. But the answer is not quite yet in. <laughs>